Hey, um, I just want to share something tonight out of 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's a really familiar story. It's about David. It really has to do with coming under spiritual attack. Is there anyone who's ever come under spiritual attack before? One or two people here? All right, okay. If not, don't worry, it'll happen. Uh, in fact, uh, let, me, let me just say that, that there's a lot I feel prophetically the Lord wants to speak to us about from this passage. And we're really dealing with the idea of um, triumph in tra tragedy and really trials uh, becoming testimonies. You know, someone has said, a good American preacher, if you want to have a message, you've got to have a mess, right? If you want to have a testimony, you've got to have some tests. And it's true. And God wants us to recognize that he turns all things around for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And how does he do that? Well, verse 29 of Romans 8, I just quoted verse 28, says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So how do all things work together for our good? We love him, we're called according to his purpose, we become more like Jesus. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that um, the trials stop. Um, yes, I believe he makes wars to cease. But what I'm saying is we have to recognize that the greatest calling on our lives is not to be comfortable in life, right? But to be conformed to his life. There's a big difference. And I, I believe the more you lean into his nature and, and become one in Jesus, the more of a threat you become to the enemy. And, and there's actually um, scriptural precedent for that, that's for sure. So we're talking about David. I want to just read the first eight verses of 1 Samuel chapter 30. This is the New King James Version, Pastor Raph. Uh, just, that's the true word of God, the one that Paul preached from, right? <laughs> Jesus used it too. <laughs> All right, so 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting at verse 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there. From small to great, they did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahoniam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abathai the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abathai brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, the Lord answered, saying, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Without fail recover all. I have studied this topic of God being a 
God of restoration and recovery for years. And it never ceases to amaze me that God is able to take any situation, regardless of what it is, and turn it around for good. No matter what we've lost in life, whether the enemy attacked us and came in and stole it, or whether we just opened the front door up and said, come and get it. God has promised when we come before him with the right heart, the right spirit, that he will cause us to experience a restoration and a recovery of all that the enemy has stolen from our lives. This is an incredible passage of scripture. We know that David was a man with a great destiny. He was anointed by the Lord to lead his people and advance the kingdom of God. And there's three specific assignments that he was given. Number one, to unite the 12 tribes of Israel and establish a centralized monarchy. Number two, to lead the Israelites in successfully defeating their enemies and expanding the nation's borders, making Jerusalem the capital city and the religious center of the nation. And then thirdly, David would be used to make preparations for the construction of the first temple, which would be built later by his son Solomon. Wow, talk about a destiny. Talk about being you know, called by God to do something of great significance. So one of the things that we know about David is that he did not actually immediately move from the pasture into the palace. There was a considerable period of time before David actually became the king of Israel. It was 15 years, most scholars believe. And David lived in caves. David fled for his life from the demon-possessed Saul who was out to kill him. But the day finally came where God said, the set time has come. The time has come, David, for you to step into your destiny and for you to be used by me to do what I've called you to do. And it's very interesting that when God desires to do something significant, he has to transition people. He is a God of transition. And it seems to me, and I talk with people regularly from all over the world, leaders in, in God's church, and it seems to me that we are in a season of transition that God is about to do something very powerful, therefore, in light of this. And it's interesting that David, who had taken refuge actually with a foreign king, it ended up that the king's heart turned away from David. And David, at this point, thinking he was rejected, was actually being repositioned to step into his assignment. And often, I want to say this to you, what seems as men's rejection is actually God's redirection for our perfection. God has a way to move us, and he knows exactly what he is doing. So here is David. David now is, is moving towards Israel, and you know, it wouldn't be much longer where King Saul and, and Jonathan, his son, would be killed, and David would actually become the king. The promise would be fulfilled. So here is David. He's literally on the verge, on the threshold of stepping into his assignment and, and moving into his seat of authority. And what happens is the enemy mounts an offensive against him. It's interesting. The people that attack David and his men here, his family, his, 
are called the Amalekites. And when you look at scripture, it seems that the Amalekites pop up their heads. They appear at, at the times when Israel was about to actually move into a place of taking new territory. So for example, in Exodus 18, they just came out of Egypt. They're en route to the promised land. They're attacked by the Amalekites in the wilderness. And Flavius Josephus, who's a first century Jewish, uh, first century Jewish historian, actually writes that the reason why the Amalekites attacked David, uh, attacked the Israelites in the wilderness is because they knew that once they got into the promised land, that they would be a formidable force. It would be easier to take them out in the wilderness rather than wait until they came to a place of being established and stable. So we see Israel now, 40 years later, they've been in the wilderness and it's time to cross over. And you know what happens again is there is an attack. And the interesting thing is every time, we, we read about this, every time that they're about to take territory, we see the Amalekites appear in scripture. First Samuel 30 here, Amalek attacks David, and interestingly, this foray occurs on the verge of David's greatest breakthrough. As I said, Saul would soon be dead, and David would be the king of Judah. Now, what I want us to see from this, guys, because the Bible tells us we're not to be ignorant of his devices, of Satan's schemes. I want you to understand something. The enemy is really not intimidated by a church or by a believer that just merely takes up space. What he hates, what he utterly despises is when a man, a woman, a church, a ministry takes territory. And there are many believers and there are sadly many churches that take up space but they're not taking territory. And as soon as we step into that place where we begin to take territory from the enemy and advance the kingdom of God, we can be assured that the enemy will attack us as well. He hates the move of God's spirit. He hates when churches are planting churches and taking territory and advancing the kingdom of God on the earth. And he will do whatever he can to stop a church that is on mission and is advancing the kingdom of God and is ushering in a move of his spirit in these last days. The enemy ruthlessly attacks such people. Ruthlessly attacks such people. Hell will assault, just as we see here in David's day. See, David fell victim to the enemy's assault and he experienced unprecedented loss. His city and his home were set ablaze, his possessions were plundered, and his family was taken captive. He literally was left with nothing, nothing. Can you imagine? You're following God. You've already gone through a season of rejection and misunderstanding and even perhaps even confusion, like what's going on? Why is this happening? And then in the midst of it, you're attacked by the enemy. You're hit harder than you've ever been hit in your life and you're left reeling. And to compound matters, 
His closest allies and comrades turned against him and conspired to end his life by stoning him. Every man's spirit was bitter, and they spoke of stoning David. It's an interesting thing. And I want you to understand something tonight. Some of you, maybe you've been experiencing spiritual attack on your finances, maybe in your marriage, your health, with your kids, with your family, different things. But I want you to understand, please, that the enemy's ultimate purpose is not just to hit you in those areas. See, he has a greater purpose. Even though he does come against our physical and mental well-being, our finances, our family, and even our friendships, his ultimate target is our faith. It's our faith. You see, the Bible tells us this in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, why? That your faith should not fail. See, Jesus got to the crux of the matter. He understood that the enemy was about shaking Peter's faith, bringing him to a place where his faith would fail. And the intent of Satan when he attacks us ultimately is to sift us. It can sift us as individuals, sift us as a family, sift our marriage, sift even a church if he can do that. He is a master distractor. He literally uses the, the art of warfare through conquering by dividing. And he will do whatever he can to disrupt what God is doing. But what happens here is we see that Jesus says, I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith should not fail. Now, interestingly, the word sift, he's, he's using the you know, analogy, obviously, of sifting wheat. And, and that word in the Greek language actually means this, to test one's faith to the brink of collapse through internal turmoil. To test one's faith to the brink of collapse through internal turmoil. Wow. Have you ever had that happen? Where you're just like, wow. I, I, I shared before preaching here, I think it was over a year ago, when I talked about a time where we just came under such intense spiritual attack. It was, it was crazy, the things that were happening. And the Lord spoke to me one day, and, and he said to me, okay, enough is enough. Don't allow this to continue in your life. You need to stand up, and you need to, to, to literally retaliate against the enemy. And so the, the enemy, if he can't take you out, he will attempt to wear you out. And his intention is that our faith would fail. Our faith would fail. What does that mean? Well, someone say, well, I'll stop believing in God. Yes, some people, that's happened to them. But more than just stop believing in God, he's, he's literally all about us giving up on prayer, giving up on believing for his promises to come to pass, giving up on contending for signs and wonders, giving up on, on seeing the next move of the Spirit of God, the next wave of revival, and just settling for a type of Christianity that is nice and placid and safe. I remember a time, literally, this is a true story, this is crazy. So I'm praying and fasting and I'm seeking God, I'm seeing amazing things happen, miracles, 
Amazing miracles. We had seen so many things happen and so many people come to Christ. And I remember one night as I was praying and fasting and seeking God, the presence and the glory of God was so strong, I literally felt like Jesus was just about to come into the room. And as I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm just broken and I'm just standing in awe in the glory of God, the telephone rings. That was back in the day when phones were mounted on the walls and they had like super long cords, you know. You could walk around half the house. With, and, and the phone rang and I answered it and a voice that I didn't recognize, clearly dark and evil, said, we are going to kill you. We have put a bomb in your backyard. Wow. It's like 11.30 at night. And I'm like, all right. Okay. Cool. Game on devil. I'm telling you, I may not be the biggest guy in the world, but I'm a fighter. And when it comes to the devil playing games, I am, I'm ready. I'm ready, I'm ready to go at it. So I recognize the way I'm gonna get back to what the enemy is doing here. I actually laughed. I laughed, I did. And, and I said, you're lucky if you don't die tonight. You should thank God and you better get right because you don't know what's gonna happen to you after you've spoken against God's anointing like, anointed like that. That's how I, I responded. The next day, I went to bed and I slept. Remember this like Smith Wigglesworth when he's sleeping and he, you know, he hears a noise and he looks and it's Satan sitting there. He goes, oh, it's only you and he goes back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. So that night, I go to sleep. I get up the next day and I'm praying and I'm just walking around worshiping the Lord and the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, um, I'll tell you who it was that was behind that. And he says, it's your neighbor, it, and it's a young girl. She was a teenager. She is, is connected to that phone call. Well, it was a male voice, but she's connected to that. So I'm telling you guys, when I was first saved, lots of zeal, no knowledge, okay? The, the only thing worse than zeal without knowledge is, is knowledge with no zeal. And <laughs> so, so what happens is I, I'm like, okay, God I know your voice. That's one thing I had learned early in my walk with the Lord. I knew his voice. I knew when he spoke to me. So I walked over, I told Lynn, and I walked over and I banged on the door and a neighbor answered and she said, oh, hi, Pastor Glenn, what can I do for you? And I said, I wanna talk to you about your daughter. And she goes, well, what'd you do this time? And I said, this is what happened. Last night there was a phone call and the person said, that they are gonna kill me and that they put a bomb in our property. And she called her daughter, she came down the stairs, and she said, Pastor Glenn just told me this. Do you know anything about it? Her head drops and she says, yes, ma'am. It's America, right? <laughs> yes, ma'am. And she says, what do you know about that? She said, well, that was actually me and my friend. We're the ones that did that. He, he obviously was the voice. He is the one who said it. And so at that point, the whole thing was shut down and the enemy was exposed. But I wanna tell you that when the enemy comes against us, 
when the enemy attacks us, that we have been given weapons. And the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, they're not physical, but they're mighty in God. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do fight against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly place. See, we fight. We have to fight, guys. There is a battle that we're called to engage in. And if we just sit back, see, some things that happen in life, we kind of go, oh, wow, you know, why did that happen? And, and we look at the physical. We look at the natural. And we try to, you know, sort things out in the natural realm, but understanding that behind it all, there is a devil that is at work. Believe it or not, the only competition we have as God's church is Satan's kingdom. Not other churches, not other ministries, not other preachers. I know we act like it is at times, but he is our only true enemy. And we have to put things in perspective, recognizing that he will do whatever he can to cause us just to become benign, good Christians. Hey, we're good. We don't do evil. But if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. If the enemy can't work in your life for a purpose of destruction, he'll settle for reduction. In other words, he loves to make apostles administrators. What I mean by that is when we move out of the anointing, out of the power and the authority that he's given to us, and we stop advancing his kingdom, he's quite happy. He doesn't care how many people attend our churches, how many people uh, follow us on social media. If we are not wrecking havoc and doing damage to the kingdom of darkness, he's quite happy to settle but once we step out, like David, who had a great destiny, a calling, an anointing upon his life, he will hit us hard in the attempt to debilitate our faith so that our morale sinks to an all-time low. And he really wants us to stop believing for the goodness of God. See, there's a scripture that a lot of people are not familiar with because it's in a book that we don't read too often. The book is called Zephaniah. There's three chapters in Zephaniah. And in chapter 1, verse 12, it, the Lord says, it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will, this is what he says, punish the men who are settled in complacency. They're settled in complacency. Now, a lot of times I say, God will punish the wicked. No, he says, I'm going to settle the men who are settled in complacency. Listen to this who say in their heart, they don't necessarily say it, articulate it verbally, but they say in their heart, listen to this, they say in the heart, the Lord will not do good. The Lord will not do good. They stop believing for the goodness of God. You know, God is so good. He's so holy, he's so awesome, but he doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. He deals with us in his kindness and his goodness. And even those who don't know him, he wins them through his kindness and his goodness. And you see, if we stop believing 
in the goodness of God, we are headed for trouble. It actually says in Galatians 5 verse 6 that faith works by love. Faith works by love. How do we have great faith? We, have, we know his great love. Because he's a good God, a good father, I can expect him to do good things. Jesus said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will my heavenly father? So he's good, guys, and he wants us to trust in his goodness. And if we stop believing in his goodness, if we just think that God is, is not concerned and, and he's aloof and he's withdrawn himself and, and he's really not interested in the affairs of our life, then we come to a place where we stop seeing God do amazing things in our life and we resign ourselves to mediocrity. We must be convinced that no matter how hard we've been hit by the enemy and how bad things may seem, there is hope. There is hope. He is a God of hope. If you stop having hope, life isn't worth living. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. We have to have hope. We have to believe that we will see the goodness of God. He is a God of restoration and recovery. And remember what the psalmist said. He said, I would have fainted. Had I not believed, I would see the goodness, the goodness, the goodness of God in the land of the living. So no matter what you're going through right now, if you have received a diagnosis that isn't positive, if there is tension in your family, if you're struggling financially, if, if you just feel like, I don't know what's going on in life right now, and you just can't describe what you're going through, please know and understand that he is a God of hope. Don't stop believing. Continue to trust him because he is a God of restoration and recovery. Zechariah 9.12, the God of restoration and recovery. I love this. He says, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Oh, come on now. Come on now. Somebody better, better get this tonight. I am preaching better than you're responding. I'll tell you. Clay, he said, listen, guys, listen to this again. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. I may be in a prison right now. My circumstances may not be favorable and things may not be what they want they will be but I still have hope. I still believe even in the midst of hardship and difficulty. Then he says this, even today. Say even today. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. I will restore double to you. The NLT says, I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. Double for your trouble. There you go. It's scriptural. He just doesn't preach well. It's not just a great alliteration, but it literally is scriptural. God says, double for your trouble. Wow. What an amazing passage of scripture. And then in Joel... Chapter 2, verse 25, Israel had been ransacked by a locust plague and, 
and, and it was just a terrible thing. And, and God calls them back to him and calls them to repentance, to a yielded life. And then he promises to those that cry out to him and those that truly repent and turn to him with all their hearts. He says in Joel 2.25, so I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten. Think about that. He says, I will restore to you the years. Now, come on. How do you restore years? What if I wasted months, weeks, or even years? How do I reclaim those years? I can't go back in time. I'm not able to do that. So what does it mean? Listen, it's not just a figure of speech. It's not hyperbole. He actually means it. You know why God can actually restore our wasted years? Because he is a spirit and he is eternal. And a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. He is not restricted by time or space. Wrap your mind around that. Try to. Whew. So Leviticus 25, I love this passage. You know, this is the Shemitah. This is the Sabbath when he says, hey, guys, on the seventh year, I don't want you to plant. I don't want you to sow. I don't want you to, to cultivate. I don't want you to bring in the harvest. Let the land rest on the seventh year, right? So, of course, what do the people say? Leviticus 25, 20 through 22. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? Listen to this. Are you ready? Verse 21. I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. I think that's supernatural. I think that's supernatural. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop, meaning from the sixth year. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. Whoa. God says... I will literally transcend the laws of nature in order to take care of my children. He said, I will make it up to you. So, hey, God, I wasted. Some people get saved when they're, they're older in life, and maybe they've wasted 50 years. And God says, if you turn to me with all of your heart, if you trust me, he said, I will restore to you the wasted years. Wow, how does he do that? Because he takes the remaining days of our life, the remaining years of our life, how many, how few, and he literally packs it full with blessing. You see, he's not the God of fullness. He's the God of overflow. He, every time you read in the scripture a miracle that Jesus did, it wasn't just enough. There was an abundance. There was an abundance. You know, the Bible says that, that we know the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come to give us life and life more abundantly. That literally means life that overflows. It literally speaks of beyond measure. In fact, the same Greek word is translated in Mark chapter 6, verse 51, beyond measure. <laughs> God gives us what is beyond measure. Wow. And how does he do it? How does he do it? I want you to see this again, please. Verse 21. I will command my blessing on you. That's it. He just says, I will command my blessing. I'll take care of you. I'm telling you that we have a God who is supernatural. 
We have a God that is able to transcend the things of nature. He is a God of the supernatural. He is a God of restoration. And he can restore the wasted years. Remember we were ministering in a particular country in the West Indies, an island. And um, I was preaching and God was moving. Miracles were happening. But there was a, a young man that came. And <clears throat> that day... He, he came forward and he, he spoke with me after the service, after it was over. And he said, um, Pastor Glenn, he said, I just want to tell you a little bit about who I am. And he said, so my uh, mom is a Christian. My dad is uh, of another religion. He follows another religion. And he said, and so I've been conflicted because my dad, you know, he's like, you shouldn't follow Jesus. And, you know, God doesn't have a son and all this stuff. So he's coming against him. And, and he went through a time where he was really struggling. What do I do? And I said to him, you need to know, the real, you need to know Jesus. I said, you know about him. You've read about him. You've heard people talk about him. But you don't know him. And he looked at me and he said, what do you mean? I said, you don't know him. You need an encounter with him. And I, I, I have this thing I call a theology of encounter. Everything God does when he invades in people's lives, it's boom, it's an encounter, right? Saul on the road of Tarsus. It's all about encounter. We need encounters with God. We need a supernatural experience. And so he said, I, I want that. So I prayed with him, and immediately he went out under the power of the Holy Spirit, and he began to shake under the power of the Holy Spirit, and he was out for over two hours. He had visions of Jesus, and that night, Literally, they put him, they carried him and put him in a car because he was so drunk in the spirit that, that literally he couldn't drive. And they put him in a car and they took him home and they had to carry him into his house. And he woke up in the morning, like late in, in the morning, and he was still drunk in the spirit. <laughs> he came back and he said, I've had an encounter with Jesus. I know he's alive now. And he told me some of the things and the visions he had and, and what Jesus said to him. It was full on. And he, he, he came forward that night and he said, I want you to pray for my business. He said, my business is languishing. I'm having a difficult time. Would you pray for my business? And I said, sure. And he said, and by the way, I just want to let you know that I tithe for the first time in many years. Wow. Didn't go to me. Doesn't matter. Just, just a disclaimer, I wasn't asking him to tithe to get a miracle, okay? So, don't, that'll go up in social media. So, preacher demands money for miracle. Great, okay. So, so what happens is literally, um, he, he leaves that night and comes back the next night and he walks in and his face is beaming with joy. He says, Pastor Glenn, he said, you'll never guess what happened today. I said, no, tell me. He said, today, he said, I made so much money, it's crazy. He said, I did so much business today. He said, today, in one day, he said, I literally surpassed my previous income for the last six months in one day. Yes, he's a God who can do anything. A God that can do anything. And we wonder how we're going to pay our speeding infringements. <laughs> True story.
I think there should be like a bonus fringe benefit just for that here in Victoria. So he, he comes and tells us a story. So the next day he goes to work. He comes back that night, guys. It gets better. It gets better. He says to me, he comes back. He said, Pastor Glenn, you'll never guess what happened. I said, you had a good day. He said, oh, yeah. He said, well, not just a good day. He said, I had a double what I did yesterday day. And I went, whoa, the scripture talks about that. I've never seen it before. But he literally made double on the second day. And what he did on the day before and the day before was more than six months of, of income. Amazing. See, we serve a God who can do anything. We serve a God that can do anything. He can restore anything. I've seen him, I've seen him turn the hearts of, of people, uh, you know, in relationships. I, I've seen financial miracles take place. I've seen prodigals all of a sudden just go, boom, I want to come to Jesus. And, and I, I've seen these miracles happen, and we can't describe it. It's supernatural. He is a God who is not confined by anything in the natural. He's the God of recovery and restoration. Now, I want you to look at this story for a moment because there's actually a role we have to play in experiencing a restoration and a full recovery of what the enemy's stolen from us. See, when we're faced with the onslaught of the enemy, we have a choice to make. Here's the choice. Are you ready? You can resign to defeat or you can retaliate in faith. You can resign to defeat. How do you resign to defeat? You do nothing. Or you can retaliate in faith. Retaliate implies aggression. It implies action. It implies doing something. And this is exactly what David did. In spite of the severity of his loss and even the present pain of his circumstances, David chose to retaliate in faith, which culminated in him experiencing a full recovery of all that the enemy had stolen from him. Just, just look with me down to verses 18 through 20 here, where it actually speaks of David recovering all that the Amalekites had carried away. Verses 18 through 20. David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. Look at verse 19. And nothing of theirs was lacking. Nothing. Nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great. Either small or great. Sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and herds that had been driven before those other livestock, and he said, this is David's spoil. Wow, what a recovery, a full recovery. There was not one thing that the enemy took that David didn't recover. Either small or great, David recovered all. It's an amazing thing, and it really speaks of not only the power of God, but also of the nature of God. See, God is so good. He's so good. And, and, and this story serves as a powerful reminder that no matter how dire our circumstances may seem, God is always there ready to fight on our behalf. And he's not only concerned with the big 
battles, but also with the seemingly insignificant losses we experience. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Have you ever heard someone say this? Well, you know, you, you talk to them and, and you say, hey, how can I pray for you? And they go, well, well pray for this person. I, I want prayer for them. And you go, okay. You pray and then they say, um, you say to them, what about you? Oh, it's, it's all good. I mean, no, it's not all good. What about you? How may I pray with you? And they respond and they say, look, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And you speak to them and you say, do you think God has a problem? And it's, well, it's just not important. I'm like, you don't understand the character of God. It's important to him. It matters to him. No matter what you're going through, it matters to him. He cares about the big things. He's powerful enough to do anything. But he's concerned enough for you to even take care of those seemingly insignificant losses. He cares for you. So how do we engage in the battle? How do we fight the good fight of faith so that we experience a full recovery? There's three things I just want to touch on here quickly. Number one, press into his presence. First Samuel chapter 30, verse six. David is going through all of this opposition and resistance. His mighty men have turned on him, and it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, I want you to see this because we need to understand when we're contending for recovery, when we're in the heat of battle and the enemy has assaulted us and he's stolen from us, that it requires that we go to a deeper level of faith, a deeper place of surrender, a deeper place of intimacy, and even intercession. I've seen God turn crazy situations around as a direct result of intercession, prolonged intercession. I've seen it time after time. People prayed, people declared, and people decreed, but when we interceded and literally got to that place where we began to cry out, then, after sometimes in three or four hours of deep intercession and crying out to God, all of a sudden we feel like something has shifted, something has changed. It's like you have this sense of peace, and like God has answered you, and then it begins to manifest in the natural what you've experienced in the spiritual realm. And it's true because Jesus said that there are some victories that will only be afforded us through prayer and then sometimes fasting as well. But it's all about going to a deeper place. David strengthened himself in the Lord. The word strengthened, it's an interesting term. It means to tie fast or bind tightly. To tie fast or to bind tightly. In Isaiah 40, verse 31, you know the verse, it says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, right? And they shall mount up with wings of ease and run, not be weary, walk and not faint. And you see, that particular verse there speaks of waiting on the Lord. It's a different Hebrew word, but it's very similar. That word means like to take cords, maybe three cords, and to bind them together, to twist them together, like braiding. And what happens is the end result is you have something that's one that formerly wasn't, and it literally becomes uh, something 
you know, that is, that is incredibly strong. And so it says those who wait on the Lord. Now, a lot of us wait for the Lord, but there's a difference in waiting for the Lord and waiting on the Lord. So wait on the Lord. Become one. There's so much we could say about this. Guys, we have to get intimate with him. We have to go to that place of oneness, pressing into his presence, strengthening ourselves in the Lord. There's times when you're not going to get encouraged by people. This word is sometimes translated encourage. There's sometimes that people just aren't going to encourage you. Sometimes even well-meaning friends, they do all they can to encourage us, but it's not enough. You see, there's a place of being strengthened and encouraged in the Lord. Secondly, perceive his promise. Verse 8, David uh, speaks to Abathai the priest to bring the ephod. And then it says that he inquires the Lord, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And God answers him, says, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. So for every problem we have, there is a promise. And I want to say to you that God has a word for you right now. God has a word for his church right now. God has a word for Numa Church right now. And he wants us to lean in and to listen, to inquire of him. What are you saying? See, confusion is of the enemy. Hopelessness is of the enemy. So David knew he needed a word from the Lord. And sometimes we just need to hear from God. We don't know what to do. We think we can figure it all out. And and God's like, no, you just need to hear from me. You, You need to hear from me. It's so important that we hear God's counsel. It's so important that we get a word from him because sometimes those words that he speaks to us are literally our marching orders. They're literally our our sanctioning to be able to go after the promise of God. I remember a time when I was dealing with something in the natural had to do with property related to our church and um, we we had some property that we shared and and, and the person that, that we, we literally hired the property from began to give us a hard time and a difficulty. And I was wanting to, you know, to pray into this and, and to really battle. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, no, don't. Don't fight. This is of me. And I realized at that point that God was saying, you could fight this all you want in prayer, in intercession, but it's not my will. I remember I met um, a man from Fiji he was in the British military, and he, he began to tell me that he was basically being, um, having a hard time, you know, because he was a Christian, and they were giving him a hard time because of his faith. And he literally was fighting in the court system. So he wouldn't be, you know, kicked out of the military, basically. And I hadn't met him, I didn't know him, and uh, he, he, he hadn't even shared this with me, but I, I was ministering to him, and I got a word. I said, you're fighting something that is a losing battle. And I said, you are not going to win this battle because God is saying he doesn't want you to win this battle. God was trying to move him in a different direction. Six months, he told me the story, and six months later, he messaged me, and he said, you're right, I lost. And he was back in Fiji. You see, we have to hear from God, guys. We can sit back saying, what do we do? I'm confused. I don't know what to do. How do I fight this? But God wants you to hear from him. And lastly, pursue until you prevail. In verses 10 and 17, David attacks them. Then it says in verse 17, 
from twilight into the evening of the next day. We pursue until we prevail. You see, how do we fight the battles? We sing, this is how I fight my battle, but do we know how to fight our battle? Right? Okay, so how do we fight our battles? We praise until we prevail. We pray until we prevail. We prophesy until we prevail. Sometimes you prophesy to yourself. And sometimes you preach until you prevail. <laughs> sometimes we're preaching things and we ourselves are literally the, in need of, of the same thing. Some of the great men that saw the, the birth of the Holy Spirit movements, particularly in America, uh, were preaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and yet they themselves had not yet even been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Some of the great Pentecostal movements in America, they had not received the baptism, but they were preaching on it, and, and then one day the word literally came to fulfillment in their lives. See, we're called to a place of recognizing that there is a battle that we're called to engage in. We can resign ourselves to failure or we can retaliate in faith. Yes. 